0: So I have this sort of interpretive philosophy about uh, scripture and about life in general, uh, that we avoid the fullness of the implications of things because they are hard. (laughs) Uh, We avoid the full implication of of things uh, because they're hard. The full implications of really not just ideas and words, but relationships and the things all around us in our lives um, because they're hard to deal with. And, And frankly, at the heart, At the root, it's because we are pathetic, weak, fear-driven wimps who do not want to wrestle with the full force of the meaning and the implication of things because we care about protecting ourselves to the exclusion of glorifying God. So we pretend not to see things. We refuse to wrestle with what things mean. I think that happens when we come to scripture and how we read it. I've come to this kind of conclusion because of the pattern that I've seen just over almost two and a half decades of ministry, of pastoral ministry. It becomes just pattern recognition. I I see people everywhere avoiding hard truths about life. Yes, generally, but most pointedly, avoiding hard truths about themselves. So, I want to ask you for the first two thirds of this sermon to just think very deeply and very seriously with me through Scripture about you. I think we need to do this every once in a while. To think very deeply and very seriously through Scripture about what God says about you and your natural tendency to love sin and evil. You see, contrary to the happy-go-lucky and sort of frothy feel-good view of the self that characterizes much of modern Christianity today, the Bible makes a very strong and a very extended case that you are at heart at the very center of who you are, most fundamentally characterized as so naturally corrupt and broken and bent toward evil that you love more than God, that you are hopelessly doomed for eternal damnation before a holy God who deserves perfect obedience from his creatures. Listen closely to the words of Paul in Ephesians 2. He says this, Listen to how it explains who we naturally are in our own power. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So think with me here about the fullness of the implications of what Paul is saying here in these verses. He's saying, verse one, we were dead in sins with no measurable inclination toward pleasing God. Dead doesn't mean like there's some up and down, breathing of the chest. (laughs) It doesn't say you were slightly unaware in your sins. It doesn't say you were mostly dead, apprentice bride. It says we were dead in sins. Verse two, look at that. It says we were so dead in sins that we were alive in them. The word he uses here talks about walking in it, living in it. We walked in sin. We were so entranced and so in love with sin that Paul says we were following the power of the evil one. Verse 3 says that what made us seem alive, what made us move and walk, was the passions of our flesh that were animated, that were made alive by the desires of the body and the mind. He says we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. Now most of the people that Paul was writing to here in Ephesus, they'd fairly recently become Christians. So they had a pretty good recollection of their pre-Jesus past. But in contrast, so many of us have heard the good news for so long. We've forgotten that it is the evil that comes from our hearts that's the bad news that must be fully and clearly understood if we're ever gonna actually fully love and understand the good news. In the meantime, between pre-Jesus you and who you might be now, and that you've known Jesus and the good news for so long, so many of us have so squarely and sort of unwittingly bought into the modern heresy of human innocence that we have forgotten who we really are in our hearts without God's intervention. So just to make crystal clear the fullness of the implications of the way Scripture itself talks about what Paul is saying here, I want to share with you a bunch of Scripture that speaks hard truths about who we really are without God. Listen to these passages for how they shed further light on what Paul is saying here in the first three verses of Ephesians 2 about us being dead in sin. In the book of 1 John, it tells us, it says that love comes from God. This is one of those things I think we need to understand the full implications of. Love comes from God. Look at 1 John 4.10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the full payment, the satisfaction of God's just wrath against our sins. And then just a few verses later in 1 John four nineteen, John says, and again, hear this with the force that it actually demands. We love because he first loved us. This is one of those places in scripture where we're like, hey, that figurative stuff, we can explain it away as just metaphorical. No, I think this is the kind of thing that's meant for us to, to take far more seriously with the kind of implications it literally says. We love because he first loved us. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God shows his love for us in this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us is what it just said in 1 John 4. And then here in Romans 5, 8, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that in the time that we were sinners condemned before him in rebellion because of sin, because we love sin more than God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just a couple verses later, in verse 10, it says that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Colossians 1.21 says, you were hostile in your mind. Your mind was set, is the kind of word Paul uses there. Set against God's ways. In our natural condition, we do not love God. We love sin. In our natural condition, we love ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart, above all things, is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's the number one thing you can say about it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Apart from the intervention of God to give us eyes to see, we cannot understand our deceitful and desperately sick hearts. In the first section of Romans, the first main section of Romans, where Paul has made very clear that all deserve the wrath of God because of what he says is the unrighteousness that we have that suppresses the truth of God that all people actually have in them. You see, there are no people who don't believe in God. All people believe in God. It's just that unbelievers suppress it. He says this, Romans 3, 9 through 18. He's quoting Psalms 14 and 59. He says this, What then, are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged in everything he's been saying that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul, for one does not seem to struggle with understanding the fullness of the implications of the natural bent of the human heart toward love of sin and evil. It's all over the scriptures. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis eight twenty one. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Second Chronicles six thirty six and First Kings eight forty six. There is no one who does not sin. Job fifteen. Behold, God puts his trust in his ho- puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Psalm fifty one five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopards his spots? No, they cannot. Then also in that same manner, you can do good who are accustomed to evil, meaning you cannot change yourself. Romans six twenty. You were slaves of sin. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, it does not have the power. Mark 7 for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness verse 23 all these evil things come from within and they defile a person john 3:19 people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil john 6:44 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking again in verse 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 8 34, Jesus still speaking. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. John 8:37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. John 8:44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires john 15:45 jesus still speaking as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When Jesus says that one of the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, one of the main reasons why is that unless the Holy Spirit enters in and makes us new, our personal greatest commandment is to squarely and pointedly not love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but to love ourselves, glorify ourselves, protect ourselves, tranquilize ourselves from all the hurt and pain around us, and functionally turn all of the relationships and the resources of our lives into one big, huge self-salvation project. It's what our hearts do. Our problem as humans is not that we are merely in need of good medicine, a nicer friend, a more thoughtful spouse, better strategies, greater resources, more smarts or know-how, a better church. We have a moral problem that goes to the constituent nature of who we are. We aren't sinners merely because we do sinful things. We do sinful things because we love sin and ourselves more than we love the glory of God. And until... Until you have stopped believing the lies that you tell yourself that keep you from believing what God says about you in his word, you will live under this delusion that you deserve, that you deserve to live in a world where there is no pain and no suffering. You will buy into the heresy of human innocence and you will pervert everything in your life toward the end of justifying it. Only self-centered people who worship themselves believe this about the world around them. The hard truth that I think is clear in Scripture is that no matter what evil you have innocently suffered, You do not deserve to live in a world free of pain and suffering. The hard truth is that the natural tendency of your heart is to believe that you are more worthy of trust than God. The natural tendency of your heart, without the Spirit's work in you, is to believe that your ways really are higher than God's. The hard truth is that when you act like the world is about you and you manipulate everything around you and your relationships with each other and your resources, when you manipulate those things around you to bend toward your will, not only are you believing that you are God, you are functionally hating him by abusing his good creation that's meant for his glory and not yours. And according to Paul here in Ephesians 2, The only chance you possibly have for heart change is the very God that you hate with your sin. The only chance any one of us has is the offer of the free gift of God's grace in Jesus, which is the gift of God Himself. Look at Ephesians 2 for some good news. Jump in at verse 4. <clears throat> First two words, we got to fly, not much time, but God. Were it not for the supernatural intervention of a perfect and holy God who knows your hearts better than we do and than you do, but God being rich in mercy, being rich to extend his goodness and love toward us, being rich to extend that to your greatest area of need, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, <laughs> meaning in the, of, in the face of our cold and dead and naturally rebellious hearts against God, and yet because of his mercy and love even when we were dead, God did three things that Paul tells us here in verses 5 to 6. Three things, two things I want to notice about these three things. A, they're all in the passive to emphasize his initiative and power in our salvation. And secondly, they are all given to us as part of being united with Christ and united with what Christ achieved for us. So three things, all in the passive and all with Christ. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Three things. Number one, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Notice again, grace, you've been saved, made us alive all in the past. We'll come into the grace stuff later. God made us alive with Christ, meaning he, he raised us to new spiritual life. That's called regeneration, which is the rebirth of the heart. Second thing, God raised us up with Jesus, meaning we are given the same power that raised Christ from the grave. Number three, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, meaning we are given the full status and weight and authority of Jesus in the place where it matters most, which is the heavenly places where the fullness of God's presence and power reside. So Paul wants to make clear here in verses four to six that it is from God's mercy, love, and grace alone that He has initiated for us what Paul calls in one nineteen the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us, and that that power from God has made us alive and raised us up and. Seen Seated us with the full weight and authority and riches and goodness of God Himself that come with being united with Christ in the heavenly places. It means that we have what He alone can achieve for us. And that's that's a part of God's amazing plan to save us. Here's why God is kind to save us. He did all this, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, which is crazy to think about. Think about this. God wants to show this is the word used here He wants to display His kindness by pointing to what He's done in you. Your salvation displays this immeasurable, rich and merciful and powerful God because of what he's done for you in Jesus. This is why it's by grace, verse eight, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. So it's by the grace of God that you've been saved. Grace is a favorite word for Paul here that he's introducing for the first time here in Ephesians. He likes to encapsulate sort of everything that happens in salvation, especially the blessing of God that we don't deserve and that we cannot earn. So here in verse eight, he's saying, it is by and it is because of God's merciful good pleasure and love that you have been saved. And the means of that is the faith and trust in Christ's finished complete. Everything in the heavenly places work for you. Your faith and trust in that is the means of grace being applied to your life. So here's the really scandalous part. Keep reading. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. In verses 8 and 9 here, there are three uh, like no's, two knots and one no, sort of surrounding this idea that it's the gift of God. Paul says, this, meaning the whole salvation thing, this is not your own doing, it's not a result of works, and it's so that you don't get to boast. Like he's trying to surround this gift of God idea with these not your thing <laughs> ideas to centralize and highlight the idea that God is the one who initiates and makes the power of this salvation happen at all. This is the true scandal of grace that we struggle to accept and that we actually fear admitting we need. And, And the extent to which we fear admitting we need God's grace is the extent to which we have bought into the world's definitions of goodness and worthiness. To admit that God is the initiative and power behind your salvation is to admit that you are powerless over your own sin. Paul finishes by putting a fine point on the idea here that God is the the architect, the builder, the alpha omega, the sort of author and finisher of your faith. He says, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. The word workmanship is literally his doing. We are God's doing, his making, his thing he made. Created, you were done, made, in Christ Jesus for good works that's what God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them so that we would live in those new good works that come from him love comes from him goodness comes from him our salvation comes from him so we are being made new new creatures Paul says in a few different ways in a few different places new creatures new doings for the sake of of highlighting and displaying God's goodness and glory. We were this, verses one to three. But God, now we are this, verses four through 10. Friends, life empowered by your doing (laughs) isn't doing much other than taking you deeper into the sin that deceives you. It is only in Jesus that you have the slightest hope. One quick thought to end. If your obedience to God is rooted in your internal sense of right and wrong or your Social cultural upbringing or your church traditions or the voices in your head from those in your past. If your obedience to God is rooted in those worldly definitions of right and wrong instead of the heart change that displays a love for God, if your obedience isn't rooted in the idea that you love God and who He is and that's why you obey Him because of what He's done for you in Jesus, then that obedience runs the risk of leaving you condemned before God because you've believed the lie that doing the right things made you good all the while refusing to understand the full implications of your spiritual deadness that requires not your perfect obedience but the riches of God's grace and kindness toward you in Jesus. Do not let today go by without considering that you might still be dead and that what you need to accept is the gift of God that is God himself in Jesus making you alive. Let's pray, friends. Father, we admit that we are powerless. to take care of our greatest problem, our deepest need, the root in our hearts that is the sinful and evil desire to trust only in ourselves and to live our lives in rebellion against you. So Father, teach us and show us who you are so that we can rightly understand who we, who we are, who we've been and who you're making us to be. Father, so that we could highlight the amazing work that you've done for us in Jesus. And that without you, we are nothing. But with you, we have everything. So Father, make of us a people who who are on full display as highlighting who you are in your character and nature and love and mercy and grace. For the sake of your goodness and glory being made known, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.